just pray together, shall we, this morning? Father, it's been wonderful to acknowledge you as Lord of all. And Father, our hearts are so filled with praise and adoration because you are so mighty and magnificent in our midst. Father, I just thank you so much for your word, that your word clearly declares that which is concerning us. Thank you, it tells us our rights. Thank you, it tells us where we stand before you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that, Father, as we study the whole question of joining together as a fellowship, that you will really bless us, Lord. Bring us into a revelation, Father, so that every man and every woman and every family may be an example to the world of what you have done with people who've believed in you. Father, we want our lives to be a stunning testimony of the work that you have done. Father, please bless us today as we come to study what are our rights as private individuals. And Father, may we learn more about living together, even from the things that we study. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We come to the second of a series of talks I'm giving on fellowship life. And uh, this morning I'm going to be speaking on commune and community, which is really the background material that we need before we come on next time to speak about who are the poor in the fellowship and who are the needy in the fellowship and our responsibility to those particular people. Last time, you remember, I talked about what the whole concept of fellowship was. And we saw that fellowship didn't just mean having a nice cup of tea and a biscuit and a little time of prayer together. But in fact, fellowship was much wider than that. It meant a sharing of every detail of one's life. And in fact, we went on to see that far from the church being a club uh, that just was in, in sort of association with other clubs, in far from it being that, it was actually a vital and living body of believers and was called the body of Jesus Christ. All right, let us begin there, therefore, where we left off last, last time, in the book of Acts and chapter 2, where we saw four important things that the early church did regularly. And I'm beginning verse 41, and then I'm moving on from there. So Acts and chapter 2 and verse 41. And of course, many Christians today long to see this type of thing in the body of Christ today. And we believe we're going to see it. But we can't see it unless we're prepared to put in all the ingredients and be obedient to the Word of God. You know, once I tried to make a Mary Baker, I always want to say Mary Baker Eddy there, but no, Mary Baker cake mix, you know. And of course, I thought, well, I know how to do it, and didn't bother to read the instructions. Was there any wonder that what I got out was a sort of uh, rather thick milkshake, actually, actually <laughs> came out of the thing? I put all the ingredients in, I just hadn't obeyed the instructions. Well, the book of Acts shows us the way to become a successful fellowship and a way to really represent what the church is all about. Verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 42, we saw four things. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And can I remind you of those three things? The first one, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which was Bible teaching. 
And I want you to know this, that we live in a day when many people think that to be filled with the Spirit is all you need. You don't need Bible teaching around. You meet these people all the time in the move of the Spirit. And they say, no, it's the unity of the Spirit, they say. And the idea is, get everyone filled with the Spirit, and suddenly you'll come into unity. And you know that's true at first. And that type of unity lasts about nine months or a year, and soon they find that when they get down to close fellowship together, then there are very big disagreements, you know, that are un underneath the surface, and which affect the communication. I have known fellowships split in half because they had no standard teaching. They were all filled with the Spirit and thought that that was it. That is not what happened in the early church. Bible teaching is essential. Amos 3.3 actually says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? How can you walk consistently if you do not have the same viewpoint on the major issues? It doesn't mean to say we all become homogenous you know, and exactly the same, and little images of one another. But what it does mean is that we share what is the basic literal truth of the Word of God as we come together. In some fellowships, you mustn't talk about this or that because it will offend that person or offend this person. You'll get half of them walking out. That is no way for unity. Bible teaching is absolutely essential. And I would say this, in our fellowship, uh, the Bible studies are crammed to the doors, generally speaking. It's a wonderful sign of strength in a fellowship. And I know most people in our fellowship would uh, go, get through flood and earthquake to get to a Bible study, right? They'd overcome most things. The, way, the thing we must attack, um, warn, uh, be warned against is this, that Satan may attack us simply by beginning to take Bible teaching for granted. We've had so much for so long, and isn't it wonderful, put our feet up. All right, that was the first. So first of all, steadfastness in the apostles' doctrine, then in fellowship, which was, of course, the sharing of the details of their lives, and in breaking of bread. And do you remember we saw last time, forget your religiosity here, breaking of bread quite simply meant the breaking of a meal. In other words, the taking of the loaf, breaking it in half, and having a meal together. And they did this regularly, and it signified the fact that as we are sharing of this loaf, so we are one in Christ. We're sharing of this ham pie, or whatever it is, so we're one in Christ. And that was it. It's a sharing of all that God has provided. And the last one, and also they continued in prayers. There is a cliche which says that the family that prays together stays together. And I want you to know that that is true of fellowships. Another sign of the strength of a fellowship is the attendance at the prayer meetings. And we must realize that an essential part of our faith is when we pray together. It doesn't have to be a large group, but you must pray together. And that is what God requires of us. This is why we have so many prayer meetings in the fellowship. We don't expect you to go to every one, but I would say this. If you count yourself a member of this fellowship, and you share the aims, you should be going regularly to one prayer meeting per week. Now, if that's an evening one, we don't expect you to stay all evening. You can pop in for 20 minutes or half an hour, three-quarters of an hour, or an hour. But we've got to pray together. I prefer an early morning prayer meeting. Our prayer meeting is from quarter past seven to eight o'clock. I find that extremely satisfactory, you know? Now, there may be some in the fellowship who really can't make a prayer meeting. What you must do, therefore, is make sure that you are praying with someone. It's a good idea at work to find other Christians and to pray with them. I understand our postmen over in Bognor Regis Post Office are actually praying together. That's a wonderful thing. 
or find someone else in the fellowship who can't make the, the prayer meetings that we have and see about getting together with them and starting your own prayer meeting. That would be excellent. So here it is, praying together. It's an essential part of what God is doing. All right, let's leave those then and go on. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And verse 34 and 5 are important. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. And as soon as we move on to this passage, we immediately have certain questions that come to our mind. Here they are, they were all together. They had all things common. Any who owned lands or houses or goods, possessions, sold them and gave to the needy in the midst. Well, you look around this country and that's not generally what you're, you see going on. And what we have to ask is a very important question. Is this God's desire for every fellowship group that now meets in this country? That's an important question. Or as I phrased it this morning, does God want commune or does he want community? Now, for those of you who uh, don't know the difference, let me just share the difference with you. I know of two fellowships in this country who have gone for the commune type of revelation. The commune type of revelation says this, if you're going to join us, we expect you to sell your house or give it to the fellowship. We expect you to sell your car or give it to the fellowship. And we expect you to go and live in one of our communal houses. And the fellowship owns all the property and you have no rights of ownership. You come in and live in one of those houses. It's more than that, actually. Then, once you're in that house, whatever salary or wage you earn, all has to be given to the fellowship that you belong to. So as soon as the money comes in, you hand it lock, stock and barrel over to the elders of the fellowship or to the general fund or whatever it is, and you have no money of your own. And then the fellowship provides for your food, for obviously your housing, for your clothing, and anything you have as far as a need. You share everyone's car, so you just pick up whichever car is available and use that. And in one fellowship, actually, that went this way, they even share, shared families. So that the children, if they were naughty, who, whichever adult was there could discipline that particular child. You see? And, uh, and that's the way it went. Now that's the idea of commune. What's community then? Community is entirely different. Community is this, that every person in a fellowship owns or rents their own house and that that person has the responsibility of running and providing for their own household, but they give of some of their wealth, some of their salary, to the fellowship, which then has a responsibility to look after the poor in the midst. Community would say this, that every man must be a steward in his own house and must make sure that he gives unto God that which God requires from whatever he has. A community would have all things in common in this way, that they would say everything we have is the Lord's and if you call by and really have a need and I have this, you can have it. 
as the Lord tells me. So if the Lord tells me to sell my house, then I'll sell it. But until he tells me to sell my house, I'm going to keep it for him. Now that's the difference between commune and community. In a community, you have no right to discipline any other man's children. You don't lay a finger on their children, except with their permission, that is. Uh, what you do have a right to do is correct the parents. You see? <laughs> that's entirely different. Now the question is, really, is God for commune or is he for community? And a superficial reading of the book of Acts would definitely say it's commune. And what we have to talk about this morning is, really, is it? By the way, the communists actually say that Jesus Christ was a communist. The chaplain of the university that I went to, who was an Anglican, I remember so clearly when I was a young Christian, he actually stood up and he said Jesus was a communist, he said. A failed communist because he didn't get the message over. And he said, actually, Jesus failed, but God then raised up the second Messiah, who was Karl Marx. And that's actually the type of teaching that I received when I was a very young Christian. Hallelujah. Didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> they then would go on to say, these communists, and say, well, what you see in the book of Acts is the purest type of communism that there is. Now, what is the issue? The issue is, who has the right of ownership? That's what it's all about. And so, obviously, before we can study Acts, we've got to understand the principles behind all of this subject. So let's turn to the one verse that gives us the major principle in the Old Testament. Actually, there are several verses, but they all say the same thing. So let's take one, and it's found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 50, and verse 10. Psalm 50... And verse 10. And what you find here is not what you find in our society as a whole. And generally speaking, it's not what you find in the majority of lives of Christians, unfortunately. I'll begin verse 10, and let's just read it down because it's lovely. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills, this is the Lord talking, I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, he says. If I had need of food, I wouldn't tell any of you. Why? For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Now that might seem to you unrelated to what we've been talking about, but it's the fundamental issue. Who owns everything? There's only one person who owns everything and it happens to be the Lord our God. There is nothing at all in the universe he doesn't own. He owns the land, he owns the plants, he owns the minerals, he owns everything that you see around you. He is the one who has right of ownership. The lie behind our society in which we live is this. They don't believe in God. So do you know what they say? And it underlies everything. They say the state owns the land. That's what they say. It's the British government that owns the land, really and the minerals, and the wealth, and all the rest. It's a lie. God, and God alone, owns the land. You see? You find this in our society. They do all sorts of things. Have you ever heard of compulsory purchase? Compulsory purchase is when a man owns the house, but the government needs that plot of land. So the government come along and say, well, we know you own the house, but we really own it, and so we demand that you leave. You see? And that poor man, his family may have been in that house for generations. He has to sell up and he has to move on because the government or the state feels that they own the land. Uh, another example, by the way, is desk duties. 
Do you know that death duties aren't found anywhere in the Bible? The Bible says if a man has worked hard all his life and has managed to accrue wealth, he has a right to pass it on lock, stock and barrel to his children. You see, that's what the Bible says. What does the government say? Oh, well, if you've died with plenty of money, we've got a right to some of that money. And so they come along and they take the money. Now, all of that biblically is a lie. The truth is that God and God alone owns the earth. And, beloved, I want you to know everything you own and everything that the world owns outside is really God's property. All we do is rent it from God. It's on loan to us, actually. This came home to me, by the way, in a stunning revelation at about the time my father died. We just left my father at the hospital, you know? He was gone. I knew he was gone. He just wasn't in that body anymore. He was face to face with the Lord. And when we came home, I thought it was terrible. We walked in and there were his slippers. They were still there. My father had gone, but the slippers were still there. And his bicycle clips, you know? The beret he used to use when he rode to work every day. His watch and all the little details. 400 pounds in a drawer, we found. His money. And suddenly, it wasn't his anymore. He'd gone. And do you know what we did? We gave most of the stuff away. And I, it came home to me that everything we own, really, we don't own at all. You see, the f we and our money are very soon parted by death. We really are. And the day comes when God says, well, that's very good. Now it's time for you to come up to me. And what did Jesus say about the man who was so thrilled with his increase in wealth? He said, oh, you fool, he says. You fool, you've got so preoccupied with the goods of this world. But now I require your soul. And what's happened to all your goods? Why, they're just there to distribute to someone else. You see? Watchman Nee gives a lovely story, doesn't he? I think I've told it one Tuesday evening. Which really brings home the same truth. And uh, he just tells the story he needed a hotel badly. And uh, he saw this very large house. And he went to the door and he said, excuse me, could I have a bed for the night? And the man who owned the house was most affronted that he should think that this was a hotel. He said, this is not a hotel, this is a private house. The story always makes Ros and I laugh because we're getting people all the time knocking on our door asking, you know, for a bed. And uh, he said, this isn't a hotel, this is a private house. Watchman, he was about to walk away when he thought, I'm going to get the gospel in here. And he turned on his heel and he said, excuse me, has this house been in your family a long time? And the man said, yes. And he said, uh, did your grandfather and your great-grandfather live here? The man said, they did. Did your father live here? Yes. Will your children live here? Yes. And Watchman Nee looked at him and said, I think I was right the first time, it is a hotel. <laughs> it's true. Those of you who own houses, you own the houses, you know, it's my home. Those of you who own houses that are decades old, have you ever thought that other families have grown up in that house? And they've had happiness and they've had sadness and it's been home to them. Where have they gone? Now it's yours. Well, it's going to be someone else's after you've passed on. You see the principle? God loans us his goods. They're never ours at all. And to the Jews, they always recognized this fact quite simply. They recognized it like this. They said that whatever occurred in their lives, that is, whatever increase occurred, whatever wealth they received, they'd always give a certain percentage to God. And it, actually it was a tax that wasn't paid to the state, it was paid to God. And God said, will you rob me? 
by not giving me the tithe, as it was called. This is the taxation system. And they used to give a tenth of everything they got. And what were they saying? God, although it looks like mine, I know it's really yours. And to show it, here's the rent. You know, Lord, that field has produced wonderfully this year, and I think it's my field that's produced my increase, but I know it's your field that's produced increase. Uh, and therefore, here is a tenth of the increase. And everything they did, they acknowledged God's ownership of the land. We do the same. Every, uh, that is why giving is part, an essential part of the Christian life. All of us, in a, as a recognition that all we have is the Lord's, and whatever increase we have is from the Lord, we give a sum from our income to the Lord, to the fellowship, to the general fund, to a ministry, to a brother or sister. And when you do it, you gain nothing, you lose. Except spiritually, and God may bless you in the future. But actually, in that moment, you actually are a pound poorer than you were before. But you're rich immeasurably in heaven. For you see, what you're saying is, Lord, I recognize this principle, that all I have is yours, and it's not mine at all. There are people, and in the midst of the body of Christ too, who never give a penny anywhere to the Lord's work. Oh, you fools! Do you know what you're doing? If you never give, you are saying, everything I have is mine, and I have a right to keep it, and so I'm going to keep it. The trouble is, when you get to heaven, you're going to be the poorest of the poor up there. You've had your wealth down here. Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth, but store up treasure in heaven where it's safe. And there are many, many poor people who give out of their poverty very often. And I'll tell you, they're going to be the millionaires in heaven. Hallelujah. It's a recognition that God owns everything. All right, now with God owning everything, then we have to ask the question, and who does he give it to? You see, God, who is the owner, can distribute his wealth as he wants to. Who does he give it to? Does he give it to the state or to a government? What's the answer to that? The answer is, he definitely does not give it to anyone but to individuals. And this is a principle we've got to understand. The Old Testament is clear. When God distributes his property, he gives it not to groups, he gives it to individuals. And those individuals have to steward it and look after it for God. The big example of that, of course, is... Uh, found when the children of Israel went over the Jordan into the promised land. And you remember Joshua led them, and God in, Josh, in the book of Joshua told Joshua what to do with the land. What he did not say was this, Joshua set up collective farms that the, land, that the government's going to own, and you can all work, you know, these collective farms, and no man will own any land, but uh, the government will own it all, and you only work on the land. He didn't say that. Do you know what he said? Imagine this, God is going to establish a perfect country on the earth. That's what he wanted. And what did he do? He said, well, the land's all mine. I can do as I please. So he said, Joshua, when you get into that land, split up the land and give it to tribes. And in the tribes, make sure every family is given their own plot of land to look after. And they were given a plot of land. And do you know, every family in Israel owned a plot of land. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get rid of it. Even if they gave it away to someone else, at the end of 50 years, it came back to them. Every family owned a plot of land, and they had total rights as far as that land was concerned. You see? 
and every family could do as they pleased. Some of them used the land well, and they became rich. Others used the land badly, and they became poor. But all of them actually had right of ownership. God consistently demonstrates in the Old Testament he gives private property to individuals. You see? And these individuals actually have rights over their private property. God hands over the rights to them. You find this in the Bible in many, many passages. Do you know that I could go through so many? Do you know that little phrase in Deuteronomy that actually says, remove not thy neighbor's landmark? What that actually means is this, that if your neighbor owns a plot of land, he has a right to own it, and you're not allowed to say, oh, give me your landmark, I need that bit of land. You have to respect his right of ownership. And even the government had to uh, respect your right of ownership. Let's turn together to a passage where the government tried to take over someone's land. And let's have a, a quick dip into it. Turn to the book of 1 Kings. All right, 1 Kings and chapter 21, where we have a, a lovely example. There are so many examples of this, I wouldn't know where well, it would take hours and hours and hours to go through every one. So I'm just giving the basic principles. In 1 Kings 21, and beginning verse 1, we get what's called the Naboth's Vineyard Incident. Now here it is. And remember that the king was the state in these days. All right? Look what it says. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard. I want your land, please. You know, it's convenient for me, and I need a bit more land. Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me. He says, I won't. I refuse, point blank. So, sorry about that. I give you deference as my king, but you're not having my land, he says. The Lord forbid it me, that I shall give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And look what Ahab did. He had to accept it. You see, this was no compulsory purchase here. It wasn't allowed. And look what it said, verse 4, And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. And by the way, you get a picture here of a very, very immature king. Oh, really? He goes into a deep sulk at this point. Can't get my own way. Stamping his feet on the ground, you know, sucking his thumb. That's the type of picture that's given. Look what it says. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my father's. And he laid him down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. <laughs> ah, it's unfair. You know, that would have made the loveliest herb garden ever. I need a vegetable patch and he won't give it to me. Why couldn't he give it to him? Because under the law of God, God had given the land and the rights to individuals and their rights were absolute. The only person who would take that land away was God when he actually would take the person away rather than the land. You see, that is through death. And it, the story goes on, you probably know it, that Jezebel says to him, who's king round here? 
And she says, of course you can get the land. And actually, they lie about Naboth, and they actually have Naboth murdered, you know, in a very subtle way. But do you know what God did? God said about Ahab, then you will die also for what you have done. Now, it was the rights of Naboth to his private land. The Old Testament constantly talks about private ownership and private rights. I wonder whether you've ever seen this. Two of the commandments say this. One of them says, thou shalt not steal. <coughs> Have you ever seen the push behind that commandment? Thou shalt not steal actually says that whatever your neighbor owns, he has a right to own, and you have no rights to own it for him. Therefore, whatever he owns, he can keep. You don't have any right to take it away. Many people today say, oh, well, brother or comrade, I haven't stolen it. You see, it's the people's property. They wouldn't have any such commandment as thou shalt not steal. The fact that God said thou shalt not steal means that people will own their own property and have a right to keep it. And the other one is lovely, isn't it? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And it actually says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox. By the way, a friend of mine said to me, Roger, there's only one commandment I have never committed in my life. And I said, really? He said, yes, I've never coveted my neighbor's ox. <laughs> and he said, because my neighbor's never had an ox. You see? But what's the push behind that commandment? The push behind it is this. Recognize that God owns everything and that if he has given your neighbor more than you've got, accept God's right over his own property. And accept that if you've received only a little amount, well, God has seen fit to give you that little amount. It doesn't mean you're of any less value or anything. You're all made in the image of God. But God can do with his own property as he sees fit. You see? And that's the push. But both of those commandments mean this. A man has a right to private property and has a right to have absolute power over those possessions. You see? That is the push behind uh, the whole of the Old Testament. What about Jesus then? Right? Let's uh, skip through quickly. We've only got a bit of time. What about Jesus? Did Jesus have anything to say about private property? Was he a communist? The answer is he definitely was not a communist, right? In fact, Jesus upheld the law absolutely, and he supported the law absolutely. To show you that, let's uh, turn to Matthew, into the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 20. And to a parable that Jesus told. And this, uh, this just shows us Jesus' attitude to private ownership and so on. For the kingdom of heaven, in verse 1, is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Now, he owned a house and he owned a vineyard. And notice this, Jesus never, ever, ever, ever says any, anything here about the man being evil and how wicked that he didn't sell it all and give it to everyone else. He never comments about the man at all, right? And this man goes out and he wants to hire workers in the vineyard. And so look what he does. Um, 
Verse 2, and when he agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Here were the laborers waiting to be hired. And Jesus, sorry, the man who owns the vineyard goes out and says, are you prepared to work for me? And the man says, well, it depends how much you're going to pay me. And so the chap says, well, what about a penny a day? And the chap says, well, that sounds like a pretty good wage. I'll definitely work for you. And so he has a right, by the way, the worker has a right to say no. Uh, but here he thinks a penny is just about right. And so he says, well, that's fine. So the work progresses. And as the owner of the vineyard goes out, he sees that the work isn't coming on terribly fast. He needs a few more workers. So look what happens. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. All right, and that's it. They start work. Verse 5, again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, with only one hour left of work, he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They said unto him, Because no man has hired us. He said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. And an hour later, it's time for the pay. You see? And what happens? They start with the last one. And there's all the workers queuing up, and the chap who worked for one hour is queuing there, and the vineyard owner goes to him and he says, Well, you've worked very well, here's a penny and gives him a penny. And the man says, wow, that's fantastic. I've worked an hour and I got a penny. Then the next chap comes and he gives him a penny. And the next chap comes, he gives him a penny. And the man at the back of the queue who's worked 12 hours, he says, oh, you know, wonderful. If that chap's earned a penny for one hour's work, I'm going to be rich after this. And when he reaches the front, the man says, oh yes, we agreed on a penny, didn't we? Here's your penny. Now Jesus doesn't hear say, isn't that wicked? Oh, it's just awful, you know, that that vineyard. This is not fair. You know, you ought to have a sliding scale and all this. He doesn't say that. <laughs> you know, and then bonus and overtime thing. He doesn't say anything like that at all. And in fact, when the, the man who has worked all day gets a bit, you know, disgruntled about his pay, what does the vineyard owner say? Go over to verse 11. And when they had received it, they murmured against the government of the house saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered unto them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? He said, I told you before you started to work that after 12 hours' work you get one penny. He said, And you accepted that, so why, do you, why are you now complaining? I'm just being as good as my word. And the next verse is essential. Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? And the word lawful means, if you look in the law of God, doesn't it give me the right to do what I want to do with my money? And he could have said, and by the way, doesn't it give you the right not to work for me if you don't want to? Yes, it does. You see? And here is the right of ownership. A man who owned a vineyard could pay whatever wages he wanted to, and the workers had the right to say no. That was it. It's individual rights that come out. And then it says this, Is thine eye evil because I am good? And Jesus used that to say, and listen, God's like that too, he says. And those of you who've been saved on your deathbed, 
You're coming into the same glory as those who've been saved as little children of seven and eight and who've had to struggle with the world for 50, 60, 70 years. Unfair? No, it's not unfair. Not at all. It's God's goodness to the one who's just been saved. And he says, can't I own salvation? Don't I have a right to do with my own goods as I please? Now, can you see the push? I've only dealt with a few passages, but can you see the push behind these passages is this. Every individual has received from God what God has given him, and he has a right of ownership. He has a right to do with that property what he wants to do. All right. But what about the book of Acts? You see, when you go to the book of Acts and you read superficially the, the opening chapters of Acts, doesn't it seem as if that rule is actually contradicted? Doesn't it really seem as if the church in those days actually stipulated that every man had to sell and give everything? That's what you'd think. Well, it doesn't mean that at all. And actually, we have to understand the, what is the background of the book of Acts. Jerusalem was always the poorest church that there was in the ancient world. It was always poor. You know that because whenever Paul and Titus and the other people travel round to the church at Philippi or to the church at uh, Salonica or the other churches, they always took up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Constantly they were talking about it. Oh, Titus has begun the work, but come on, hurry up. I haven't received the money yet for the church back home. And the reason that... Um, this money was collected was because of the special problems that the church at Jerusalem had. You see, the Romans had occupied the land of Israel. And in their occupation, they had actually taken over houses, they'd taken over lands, and they'd taken over people's means of earning a living. The result was that the people in Israel generally were very poor, had no food, had no home, had nothing with which they could buy clothing. And these people had all headed for Jerusalem. And of course, uh, the people who get saved are the ones in real need. And suddenly 3,000 people get saved and the vast majority of them don't have the next piece of bread to put in their mouths. They're absolutely as poor as anything. And of course the church and the fellowship generally has a res responsibility to the poor and the needy in the midst. By poor and needy, I don't mean those people who, say, want brand new curtains throughout or want nice uh, central heating and all the rest. That is not need biblically. Need biblically is they don't know where the next bit of food is going to come from and their clothes are falling to pieces. Every church and every fellowship must look after their own poor and their own needy. Now imagine the problem that hit the church in Jerusalem. 3,000 people get saved and most of them are on the breadline. You can read this problem, by the way, in Acts 6, where deacons are appointed because of the distribution of the food to the poor. You see, it was a major problem. And what happened then in the book of Acts is to cater with the situation that they found um, before them in the book of Acts. Does that mean to say then that the book of Acts does not talk about private property? Funnily enough, the book of Acts does talk about private property. For example, do you remember when Peter in Acts 12 is released from prison? Do you remember that? And uh, they're having a prayer meeting for uh, Peter. 
And Peter, actually, is released from prison, and he goes up, and it says in Acts 12, 12, and he came to the house of Mary. The house of Mary, which means it was her house. It does not say, and he came along to the fellowship house, or the communal living place, where Mary actually lived. It doesn't say that. It is actually her house. And history shows us this, that the early church went for private property. They had private property, and their giving was from their private means. In other words, from the money that they had owned. Turn to Acts chapter 5, or really Acts 4, and let's read through the last part of Acts 4, and then on to Acts 5, which shows us that this was the case. I'm going to read Acts 4, 32. And you'll notice here the, the openness of these saints. They gave as unto the Lord, and with tremendous problems around, they gave everything that they had for these problems. If ever problems hit Britain, it may be that we will be called upon to make such sacrifice. And praise God, because we'll be willing to do it. Hallelujah. We really will. Look what it says, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Right? They had the same mind about things, and they moved together in love. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. Isn't that significant? He possessed them, but he didn't claim them as his own. And I, by the way, possess my house. But I don't possess, possess it as my own. I say it's the Lord's house. And I really mean that if the Lord ever told me to have people to stay or told me to give all the furniture in one room away, I would do it. It's the Lord's. And if ever the Lord led me out to Zimbabwe or Uganda or wherever as a missionary, I'll tell you this, I'd hand it all over to the Lord's people. Why? Because it's the Lord's. You see? And no man said that the things that he possessed were his own, but they had all things common. And then you read of the type of sacrifice that, uh, that was true of them. Verse 33, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked that is full of meaning when you understand the type of situation that was in the church of Jerusalem. There wasn't one that lacked anything. It's fantastic. And if ever we have needs like that, sometimes in the fellowship people will sell land, sell houses. They didn't sell the houses they lived in in these days, otherwise that would have added to the problem. You sold the extra house, the extra land that you possessed. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. There were no deacons in these days, and the general fund was entirely run by the apostles. You see, and they came, they laid down the, the goods at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph who by the apostle was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it. By the way, I'm not going to comment on this, there was only one group of people who couldn't own land, and they were the Levites. You might ask yourself what Joseph was doing owning some land. However, I make no comment on that. <laughs> having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that was it, but 
It was only those who possessed these extra, this extra land, these extra houses, who did it. They were no fools, of course. Jesus had prophesied about the land of Israel, and he said this. By the way, he said, uh, there's going to be an invasion of the land of Israel. And you know, when a foreign army takes over and invades uh, a land, no property is worth anything anyway. And so these people who were living in Jerusalem thought, well, when the invasion comes, these things are going to be worthless. I may as well sell them now and get some capital from them. And so they did. And the capital was given to the apostles who provided for the poor and for those in real need who were being saved and coming to the Lord. But then you get the Ananias and Sapphira incident. And it is the Ananias and Sapphira incident which shows that, pri that individuals here had a right to private property and had a right to do with their property as they wanted to. Here were Ananias and Sapphira. They saw all these people who had some land, had some houses, selling them and laying the goods at the apostles' feet. And they thought, oh, we'd love all the church to know what we're doing with our money. We'd love a bit of that glory, you know. Oh, everyone thinks they're fantastic, these people. Hey, what about doing it? You know, and Ananias said, yeah, come on, Sapphira, let's do it. And we'll sell our goods and we'll put half away for our old age. And we'll give the other half to the apostles for the church you see there was actually nothing wrong in doing that except that they lied about it you see they could have actually sold their land and given half the money that would have been all right they didn't they pretended it was all the money that was being laid at the apostles feet read it carefully and go through verse one but a certain man named ananias with sapphira his wife sold a possession it's land. You see, that's the possession. And kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. It was a big secret. Just the two of them knew what they were doing. And bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter here is given the gift of discernment. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. You, this isn't all you paid for that land, Ananias, but you're pretending it is. Why are you lying to the Holy Ghost? And verse 4 is so important and answers our point. Was it commune or was it community? The answer in verse 4 it was, was, sorry, is that it was community that was the rule in the early church. Look what it says. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? In other words, look, the apostles aren't asking you to sell this land. You have a right to ownership. While you had possessed this land, it was yours. Why do you have to lie like this? We're not going to think any the worse of you if you don't do it. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? In other words, couldn't you have said, well, we'll give half to the church? Why do you have to lie about this? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. They wanted the glory as having given everything, but they weren't prepared to give any, everything. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And as far as God was concerned, that was the sin unto death in Ananias' life. Go down to verse 8, and you'll see what it is. Sapphira comes in, or verse 7. 
And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, and he, this is a test. He says, tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. Do you see the point there? Uh, Sapphira, um, Ananias has just been in, and he said, you sold the land for this much. Did you sell the land for this much? And she says, Sir, yes, yes, we did. Do you see? There's the lie. If she said at this point, well, actually, that was half the price and we decide to give half to the Lord, he would have said, well, that's fine, Sapphira. Why did Ananias say it was all? You see, don't lie to God like that. And it says, yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door. They shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yield up, yielded up the ghost. This passage shows us this that the Christians in the early church were not under obligation to sell all their goods. If they did it, it was entirely voluntary and in response to the needs that they saw around them. Therefore, it was not commune. And any fellowship that demands of people who want to join it that you must sell this house and you must give all that money and you must do this is totally anti-biblical. The push in the Bible is... When people join your fellowship, they have a right to have their own house or to rent their own house if they can't afford their own house, that they must look after the needs of that house. The Bible says any man that does not care for his own family is worse than an infidel. You see? We've got to get that clear. Many people try and use fellowships as a sort of continuation of the social services. You see? And the social services has always provided, but now they're Christians, they'll get that plus money from the fellowship. That's not right. Many people would love that to be the rule. No. The rule is that we will help those who are poor until they can stand on their own two feet. Hallelujah. And when they can do that, they will have enough over to give to others in need and to give to the ministry. The push is private ownership, rights to ownership, and then correct stewardship. This word stewardship is very important. If everything's held communally, you don't, you can never be judged for your stewardship, you know, because you give everything and you don't steward anything. The whole point of stewardship is this. God says to you, I have given you thus much, what have you done with it? And if you're rich in this fellowship or if you're poor in this fellowship, I want you to know one day you will give an account of all that you have been given. It may have been little, but God still wants it used for him. Why? Because it's his, you see? You will have to give account. And those of you who are rich, you may give £100, you see? That's quite a large sum. £100 you may give. And God will say to you, that's, that's fine, you have reward for that. But if you're poor, you can only give 50p. Beloved, you will be blessed the same as the chap who gave £100. You see? It's done on a percentage basis which is wonderful. And next time, I'll actually be dealing with talents and how God rewards us, and then we'll be looking at the needs uh, in a fellowship group and who the fellowship should supply for. But this is the point. Every one of us who is a member of this fellowship, you have to be a good steward of your own goods. God has given them to you to look after, not to the fellowship to look after. And you will be given help, anyone who's in need, as far as your need is genuine, you will not be provided for as far as your uh, 
squandering is concerned. That's very, very important indeed. And next time, having talked about this, we'll talk about who are the poor and needy, and we'll talk about how the fellowship ought to supply. But beloved, remember this, all that you have is the Lord's. All your talents are the Lord's. And he says to you, you can do as you please with them. You will either squander them on yourself, or you will use them for his business and for his kingdom. You will give account. Incidentally, some people in the fellowship here met a chap who knew me as a non-Christian. I was quite heavily involved in politics in those days, you know. And he didn't know I'd been saved. And these people, I think they're in the midst this morning. Um, this chap actually, my name came up in the conversation. They were obviously talking about the Lord and about the fellowship they belonged to. And he said, Roger Price, didn't he used to live in Ealing? And they said, yes. Oh, what's he doing now? You know, I remember he used to be, um, you know, quite active in politics, didn't he? What's he doing now? And they said, oh, well, actually, he's a full-time Bible teacher. <laughs> they said, what? Full-time Bible? What do you, religious? No, no, not religion. Hallelujah. No, no, he's in reality. Hallelujah. <laughs> and this chap turned around and he said, what a waste. Honestly, all that talent that could be used for, for uh, politics and things like that. Beloved, he's got it all wrong. You see, all that I have is received as from the Lord and one day I'll give an account. And let me tell you this, to serve it all for the Lord, to give it all to the Lord, he is no fool who does that. Absolutely not. Every one of you, you may have a lot of talents, you may have a few talents, every one of you will give an account as to how you've used it. Community means we must check how we use our own talents and our own resources for the body of Jesus Christ. It may be at times, I will say to the fellowship, we have a need in this area, right? Then you may think, I should give to that, and I can't afford to, I may have to sell this or sell that. Okay, that will be rare, at the moment in this fellowship. But every week and every month you must make sure that you ask God about what you own, about your income. Lord, how much should I give? Regular giving is part of good stewardship and part of community, right? My judgment, therefore, is quite simple. Commune, definitely not, unless the circumstances demand it. Generally, the rule is and was in the early church all around the Mediterranean, community in which individuals have to be careful in their stewardship. Next time, we'll be talking about the needy, the poor, the homeless, and how we actually provide for them. The Lord bless you. Amen.